is the Pilot Life Podcast, the show that covers all topics of aviation. My name is Ray Maldonado, professional pilot and instructor. Thanks for tuning in and making your choice to become a better pilot. In this show, we do not only motivate and inspire, but give insight to the aviation lifestyle. Let's get started. Welcome to a new episode of the Pilot Live Podcast. We have new episodes out every week. So if there's any topic you would like to hear about, send me an email at thepilotlivepodcast at gmail.com. So by far, the most requested topic that I get is how do I get my license to fly? So what I'll be doing is explaining how the private pilot certificate works. Now, you'll hear this in two different ways, either private pilot certificate or private pilot license in reality they are the same thing the ppl private pilot's license is how it's abbreviated only thing the faa did a couple years back is they said the word license is too broad and specific and they changed it to certificate okay i'll be referencing it as both so just to give you guys an idea they both mean the same thing all right now that we got that clarified What can you do with your private pilots, and is there any limitations that apply? Because also, a big stigma that I see is people think, okay, I got my license, I can go make money, I could go take people around, I could fly them around. Maybe it depends. We'll get into all that a little bit later. So, small disclaimer, everything that I will be covering today is only valid for the United States. I'm not really sure how other countries worked. I've done all my flying here in the States under the FAA regulations. So in order to qualify for a PPL, you have to meet certain conditions, all right? There's a couple things that are kind of hard to get around and you just have to fall in that criteria. Two very big ones are, you must be at least 17 years of age. If you're 15 or 16, there's no problem. You could fall under a student pilot's license. You can still fly. You can still do all your training. Only limitation is you have to wait till your day, your 17th birthday, to go ahead and get your certificate. And many people do. No problem. Number two is you have to read, speak, write, and understand the English language. And the official language of aviation is English. So no matter where you go in the world, the controllers will be able to hit you with your English response while you're flying and communicating with ATC. I'm going to go over to, let's go France or maybe even Spain, right? So you need to know Spanish for Spain, but then you need to know French for France. So you don't have that issue. That's why they make it that it's recognized as English is the official language of aviation worldwide. So just to recap, the two criteria that you must meet is be at least 17 years of age, And the second one is read, speak, and write the English language. The rest of all the requirements are really on the individual. Even before you think about qualifying for a private pilot's license, make sure you at least meet those two. The requirements for a private pilot's license are be at least 17 years of age, read, speak, write, and understand the English language. Hold a U.S. student pilot certificate. Receive flight training 
and logged the endorsements from an authorized instructor. You must meet the aeronautical experience requirements in the aircraft the rating is being sought after. And last, you have to pass the practical test for the aircraft rating that you are currently seeking. Those six conditions are the only requirements for a private pilot's license. Now, again, they all sound very easy, and honestly, there isn't that many. But of course, each one is definitely broken into their own subcategories. For instance, the aeronautical experience, which will go under the requirements. And the same thing with receiving your logbook endorsements from an authorized instructor. That's a whole other set of can of worms. What I'm breaking down here is just the bare minimum of what is required. So those are six conditions. Now, talking about the aeronautical experience, the requirements for your first one, your private pilot lesson, aren't actually that bad. They're pretty simple in the grand scheme of things when you look at it. So total aeronautical experience, you have to have a minimum of 40 hours flight time. That is just a bare minimum so if you're somebody that's looking at the numbers looking at the cost and thinking okay i'm gonna do this at 40 hours on the dot i would highly suggest that you budget for more the reason i say that is not because i don't think you're gonna be a great pilot no because i've seen this happen time and time again even in myself in aviation nothing ever goes according to plan (laughs) it will be Things that you would never even imagine. Totally out of control. A very great example is weather. The weather could be great. The weather could be crap. And that really affects when you go out and fly. First couple lessons. The weather will be everything. If it's too windy, is it too cloudy, is it raining outside, is there a hurricane coming on in, you know? So, that's going to be huge. And you have nothing that you can control there. But then, you also have aircraft. Aircraft issues, aircraft maintenance. Maybe the airplane keeps breaking. You can't catch a break to schedule the airplane. I'll do one even better for you. The schedule. What if you can't even schedule the airplane? Turns out that the flight school you're going to, the airplanes are so booked up, you have to go ahead and start scheduling two, three, four, five weeks ahead of time. You don't know what's going to happen the next couple days, right? When you're budgeting... For your flight training, don't ever do 40 hours to the dot. Think about the average actually today, last I was flight instructing, was about 50 to 60 hours, and I believe today they still are. So, like I mentioned, 40 hours of total flight time is required, bare minimum. Three hours of cross-country time. You need three hours of night flight time. Instrument training three hours of instrument training, three hours of training with an authorized instructor should be a given. Hopefully the instructor that is teaching you could also sign you off to give you the same endorsements. And last but not least, my favorite is the 10 hours of solo flight time. Now there is ways to save money when you're looking at this requirement. So hopefully your instructor could guide you in the right direction because you don't always have to do these in individual categories. You can actually lump some of these up together. For instance, so the 40 hours of flight time. No matter what, you're going to get your flight time, so don't ever look at it like, I need to reach my 40, let's go out there and just 
fly, fly, fly. Point A to point B. You are not really going to need that. When you're brand new to flying, the most challenging part is going to be landing. They are tough. It is very tough when you're brand new. Seeing that side picture, managing your power, knowing how long to hold off the aircraft before the wheels touch, recognizing that sight picture. These are all things that are going to come over time with practice. Going back to the requirements for the aeronautical experience, like I said, 40 hours is going to be the total when you're doing your three hours of cross-country time. Break that up into two different lessons. One cross-country will be during the day with the instructor. That should be your very first one. Point A to point B, just make sure it's over 50 nautical miles. And that is your day cross-country with your instructor. Hopefully, it's summed up in a lesson so well that you don't have any questions. So you can be signed off for your first solo cross-country during the day. Okay? Then, once you do your long cross-country at night, that consists of one leg being more than 150 nautical miles with three stops. You feel a little bit more confident. You understand how the process works. And then this is how you kill two birds with one stone. Those three hours of cross-country fly time, the other half of it at 1.5 or whatever's left, you do it at night. You do the other half at night. So you go ahead and you do cross-country fly time at night. And you get some of your nine-hour experience out of the way. You follow me? Because then the other portion of your night fly time, the other either an hour and a half or maybe it's even less that's left, is your very first introduction into night flying. So you could understand the differences between flying at night and flying the day because it is significant. So your first night lesson, and again, this is how I used to do it. My first night lesson, what I would do is make sure we showed up a little bit early, about an hour ahead of our flight time. We sit down in the classroom, go over the specifics, differences between night and daytime. By the time that we were done talking about everything that was required, everything that was going to be different, and we walked out to the airplane, it was already dark. That way, you were starting the pre-flight at night. So it would have to be just as if I wasn't there. I was trying to make the experience as realistic as possible without me actually being there. I was just going to be the safety and the backup. Because I want everybody to think for themselves and make the mistakes for themselves, but again, in a learning environment. So like I was mentioning, you could go ahead and you could load up your cross-country time, your night flight time, two-in-one lessons so you could go ahead and start knocking these things out as efficiently as possible. As for your solo flight time, those is just a great opportunity for you to go out there, get experience in the airplane, feel comfortable in the airplane, and get a taste of what it's like to when you fly by yourself. So those 10 hours of solo flight time consists of a couple different things. Five hours of solo cross-country time. So this is where you're going to have your big, long cross-country in there. And then another solo. Now again, remember. So I'm mentioning all these ways to be efficient with your money, with your time here. But doesn't mean you absolutely have to do it this way. Or even better, don't think that this is the absolute minimum. If you need to do more hours to feel comfortable in the airplane, by all means, go ahead and do more hours. 
Honestly, God, that's what I wish I could have done. But for me, I was running out of my money. I took out a loan when I first started, and I was getting to the point where I only had about $1,000, $2,000 left, and I had to make sure it lasted me toward the end. So each time that I was jumping into that airplane, I had to make it as efficient as possible. The best way that I did that was reading ground school and making sure I was more than ready and more than prepared for the lesson at hand. But going back to the 10 hours of solo flight time consists of five hours of solo cross country time. One of the cross countries has to be with a flight more than 150 150 nautical miles total distance with three full stop landings at three different airports. And then each leg has to be straight line distance of more than 50 nautical miles. And the last one is three takeoff and landings with a full stop at each airport with an operational control tower. If you do all your training out of an airport that has a control tower, this won't be an issue at all. This specific requirement is really for the people that are out there in the rural areas that take off and there is actually no control tower. For those of you that are actually nervous about talking to ATC too, don't be. It's tough. <laughs> Even me, when I'm in a jet every once in a while, I trip up my own words. It's not a big issue. You're learning. They understand when you're in a 172 or even a Piper Archer or a Cherokee, they know that you are learning. And they'll be patient with you. Okay? But if it gets to the point where you're actually just totally freezing up and locking up, just let the instructor do the talking. It won't be an issue at all. And finally, the last two requirements for your private pilot's license. You have to take a written knowledge exam. So, if I remember correctly, it's about an answer bank of over a thousand questions. They pull 60 random questions for you to answer. And you have to score at least a 70 or above. My recommendation is try to score at least an A. Because when you show up to the check ride during your test... And you lay down that sheet of paper and it says 70 or 71. That examiner is going to look at you right away and say, all right, looks like you barely made it by the written, the written knowledge exam. So let's find out what you really know and what you don't. You don't want to start off on that kind of foot. You want to start off on the best foot possible. Or you want the examiner to look at that sheet of paper and see a 90 or above an A. So he's like, all right, this guy is ready. He's prepared. Also, a big part of it is when you show up to the checkride, don't show up in flip-flops and shorts. (laughs) Be presentable. At least a nice polo, some slacks, some jeans, because that's going to set the tone for the ride. I I kid you not, okay? So show up like a professional person would, wearing the right clothes, with all your books, all your endorsements, all your paperwork in order, because as a pilot, paperwork is a very big deal. And it's stressed a lot ever since the beginning. So keep that in mind. But like I said, once you take your private pilot written exam, you're ready to go. You have that. You have your aeronautical experience all met. All your private pilot endorsements in order. You're ready for the exam. Last but not least, make sure you have a valid medical. If all you want to do is fly for either a hobby or for fun, a third class medical will be more than enough. You don't need anything more. But if you're trying to do this as a career, then go for your first class medical immediately. The reason you want to do your first class medical 
is because you want to make sure you could even qualify for your first class medical. For whatever reason, okay, if you can't qualify for it, take care of the issue before you start flying. This is why I recommend when you're interested in flying from the very beginning, go get your medical and make sure you could qualify for a first class. Because if you can't, hold off on your flight training, sort all that out, and then continue. Because that actually can hold you up. I've seen medicals hold up students for several months. And I've seen medicals hold up students in their training. In particular, I used to have one that he couldn't go solo because he needed his medical. So what we ended up doing is, since that was on hold for a couple months, while OKC, Oklahoma, was reviewing his documents and everything, we started uh, pushing along in his training. We skipped right over the solo, we went to cross-country stuff, we went to short field, soft field landings, and then we circled back to his solo once he finally had his medical in hand. So, like I mentioned, that's why I recommend go get your first class medical first, then start your flight training. Even though you have your first class medical, yes, as a private pilot, you don't need it, but it'll be good for five years because after the first year, it lapses and then it refers down to a third class medical. Once you have all your documentation in order and you're ready for the check ride, you will be absolutely nervous. <laughs> and that's okay. When you go in there, you don't know what really to expect. You hear maybe a couple guys talk about it around the school. Maybe even have a check ride gouge. I used to do that too. As soon as I send guys through there, I would ask them that night if they could send me a check ride gouge from the examiner. So anything and everything he could remember from the check ride, I would ask him to write it down and send it to me just in a Word document. That way... If there was anything new, anything different that the examiner was doing, I could better prepare the other students behind him. For the most part, it was always the standard stuff. Most of the examiners we use, and this is what I appreciated the most, most of the examiners that we used to use at the flight school that I was teaching out of up in Dallas, all of those examiners were trying to give you a fair chance. Because you got to remember, I mean, these guys, these examiners, DPEs, the, the amount of knowledge that they have is so much more than what the instructor would have and even the student pilots at the time. Because they've been doing this for years and absolutely had so much knowledge and experience compared to us. You have to go in there humble and with respect. Because that check ride wasn't only going to be a test for you. But it was also going to be a huge learning experience. One thing that I do remember, and the examiner actually called me out on this, was during my single engine ATP exam, I took so many notes <laughs> that he started making jokes like, hey, what are you doing here? I'm like, hey, I'm just writing down some notes because I want to go back and reference all this material. And he's like, all right, great. So you could add that to my fee. That you're getting ground instruction as well. <laughs> he was just joking around, but I thought it was hilarious because I've never had anybody ask. But at the same time, no, nobody's ever asked me about me taking notes or questioned me taking notes. As I went through so many check rides, I didn't really realize how beneficial it was to take notes up until one of my last few. Up to that point, nobody's ever questioned me taking notes. 
but granted, by the time I took my single engine ATP, that's my eighth check ride at that point. So, I've done a couple up until there that I understood what benefit it was taking notes from my check ride so I could go back and reference them later. And last but not least, once you have your private pilot's license, what can you do with it? Could you go take your family all over the world? Technically, you can. Would I recommend that? Not until you have your instrument rating to add to your private pilot certificate. Those two hand in hand will make you a very, very safe pilot. Don't limit yourself by only being VFR, visual flight rule. Get yourself your instrument rating as well. So once you have your license, what can you do with it? Um, there is quite a bit that you could. You could take family, friends, cousins, anybody you would want, you could take them flying. Now it's a matter of money that is an issue for the FAA. Can you be paid to fly people around? No. You cannot be paid to fly anybody around. Could you split some of the expenses? You absolutely can. But you have to be careful on what expenses to split. That is why the FAA likes to use the term pro rata share. So like the rental of the airplane, you could go ahead and split that with them. That's perfectly fine, but you cannot make a single dime out of it. That's really the big takeaway about having this. This license is, or I'm sorry, this certificate is a license to learn. It's not a license to go out and make a whole bunch of money. Because when you are signed off, you pass your check ride, and you're out there for the very first time with your new printed private pilot's license. It's a license to learn, and there will be times where you do scare yourself. That's okay. That's what learning's all about. But hopefully when you scare yourself, it's a small minor mistake and you can still land the airplane, walk away from it, you'll be just fine. Hopefully it's not anything super dramatic that it actually scares you away from flying. Hopefully not. Well, thank you guys for listening today. If you have any questions at all, send me an email at thepilotlifepodcast at gmail.com. Remember to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Until next time, guys. Talk to you later.